Pastor Ike, when he asked me to preach today, uh, I realized he'd been preaching a series, or is continuing to preach a series on the parables. And so this morning, I'm going to continue with that series, and I'm going to be teaching on a parable. And just to bring us up to speed, to remind us on what a parable is, as, as I'm sure he's been doing, a parable is a short story with a hidden meaning. A short story with a hidden meaning. And Jesus used parables as an effective teaching method to teach his lessons. And so this morning, we're going to look in the Luke chapter 15 as we, as we look at one of these parables, one of these short stories with a hidden meaning, with a moral or religious lesson attached to it. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 15. We'll, we'll be there all, uh, all morning. Well, hopefully just to 12, not all morning. Luke 15, 1, 2, and 3 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told this parable. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were unhappy that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, he, 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 he taught a parable. But actually he taught three parables in Luke 15. The first parable he taught was the parable of the lost sheep. The second parable was the parable of the lost coin. And the third parable was the parable of the lost son. And Jesus is telling these three parables to the Pharisees because they are grumbling at the fact that he is eating with people that the Pharisees believe to be unclean and unworthy to spend time with. So he is about to lay out three very brief, short stories with hidden meanings. And today we're going to focus on the third parable, the parable of the lost son. It's a story that we all know, that we've, we've heard, we've taught our kids, our kids get it every year probably, we read it over and over again, but I never want to assume that everybody present knows this, the parable, so I'm going to read it in its entirety this morning. Uh, so if you, if you have your scriptures with you, Luke 15, verses 11 to 31. If you don't have your scriptures, the parable goes like this. Jesus continued, because this is his third parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give... Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. Against heaven and against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, was, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father this way, Look, all these years I've been sl slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because a brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. In your Bibles, you will notice there is a title heading above this section of scripture. And it probably says the parable of the lost son. In fact, all through the Bible, you'll notice there are bolded or italicized headings in your scriptures explaining the passage you're about to read. Those aren't God-breathed. Those are not canonical. Those are not the actual words of God, those headings. Those headings were created by, by men who, who put together the Bibles you have in your hand for you to read. God's word is all the rest of the stuff, but those bolded headings or those italicized headings are there to help us understand what we're reading, okay? And, and so when you go to the original text, you will never see in this section a heading that says the lost son. It's just not there. In fact, there's not even chapter breakdowns. It's just, it all goes together. So, so some of you have different Bibles with you this morning, and some of you have the NIV, and the NIV calls this one the parable of the lost son. That's the Bible I read from. Some of you might have the New American Standard Bible with you. It calls this the prodigal son. The CEV calls it the two sons. The um, English Standard Version calls it the parable of the prodigal son. And the New Century Version calls it the son who left home. So, so depending on what Bible you have, it has a different heading, a, a different title. Well, if you ask me, Jesus' story might have been best named the parable of the lost two sons. And, and hopefully by the end of today you'll see why. This parable is split into two acts. There's Act 1 and there's, and there's Act 2. And, and Act 1 is on the younger brother. He decides he wants his inheritance and he wants to leave home. But have you ever wondered to yourself what precipitated him wanting to leave home? What happened in the home that he decided he wanted out? Scripture doesn't tell us. I'm guessing. And, and when I read it, I, I think back to what happened in my own family. I, I come from a family of nine, which is a small family compared to some of your families, I know. <laughs> I'm the second youngest, and my second oldest was named Brian. And I remember to this day, as clear as the day, 
my brother Brian had had enough with my dad. One too many rules, one too many obligations, one too many chores. And my brother lost it. I don't know what he did, I don't remember, I don't know what he should have done, but my brother just started screaming at my father. And my father laid it down. He said what we all probably have said at some time. If you're living under my roof, you're going to? And my brother said, there's no way that's going to happen. He wanted to smoke, he wanted to drink, he wanted to party, he wanted to work, earn his own money, he didn't want to contribute to the family, and they came almost to physical blows, to the point where my brother said, that's it, I'm out of here, I've had enough. And we never saw him for five years. For five years. That affected our family. It affected my father, my mother, Obviously, it affected him, but it, but it greatly affected us. And I sometimes wonder if something like that didn't happen in this home, in this parable, if, if, if the son just had enough of living under the rules of, of the father. So he demanded his share, and he said, give me what is owed to me, and I'm out of here. You need to understand, in Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, when you did that, when you demanded your share while your father was still alive, you were basically telling the world, I have no family. My dad's dead. You are, you are telling the world, I am no longer a part of this family unit. I'm on my own. And that's what the son did. Notice what the father did. The father said, okay. And he gives him his share. So basically, the younger brother is asking the father to tear apart the family, to tear apart his life, and the father does so out of love for his son. You know, while his son is saying, you aren't the boss of me, the father is saying, well, I love you. And let me give you what you think is owed to you. And then he heads off. And we, we read in scripture that he uh, squanders his wealth in wild living. Now, for the sake of the young ears that are here with us this morning, I'm going to let you decide in your own mind what type of living is wild living. Okay? But imagine the worst thing possible, and I bet you, that's some of the stuff the young son got himself involved with, with his great wealth, his wild living. And he became, well, he became broke. Bad luck happened in the country. He spent way too much money on foolish things and a wild living. And so he got to a point where he was hungry. He had no job. He had no means to support himself. So he sold himself. He sold himself out to another person, putting himself under their yoke. And, and the humor of it is, he sold himself to a pig farmer. Again, if you know Jewish culture, you knew that a good Jewish boy couldn't go anywhere near pigs, because pork was outlawed to all Jews. And yet here we are, he's fallen as far as he could go. He's got no money, he's hungry, He's cut himself off from his family, and now he's working with pigs. And even the pigs are getting fed better than he is. So I love what Scripture says. When he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. I don't know what other choice he had. He was at the bottom of the barrel. He couldn't go any lower. And so finally he realized, I, I made a mistake. And he decided that he was willing to repent of his mistake that he was going to own his mistakes, and he was going to begin restitution. Because you see, in the Jewish culture, the rabbis taught every day to anybody who came to the synagogue that if you had violated the community standard of living, an apology was not enough. 
You had to make restitution. So as a Jewish young boy, he knew that saying sorry to his dad wasn't going to be enough. He had to say he was sorry, own his mistake, and then he had to pay for that mistake. And, and he said to himself he was willing to do that. So off he heads back home. And we know what happens. Scripture says that from a distance, the father saw him coming. Don't miss that line. From a distance. The father was waiting for his son. We don't know really what was happening, but, but I can just imagine the father doing his morning prayers, probably doing his chores, eating his breakfast, and then heading out to the, to the, to the corner and, and maybe sitting there all day watching the horizon to see if his son would ever come. Because he was prepared for his son to come back. He was waiting. And while the son was, was, was still a ways off, the father saw him and he ran to him. Folks, don't miss this. In the Jewish culture, the patriarch of the family, the leader, the head of the family, never ran. It was dishonorable to run. You never saw a rabbi run, a head of a household run. They would walk, but never run. But this father didn't care. He was so excited to see his son, he ran, and he kissed him, and he welcomed him back. That's how excited this father was. Verse 21, he confessed and he repented. He said, Dad, I know what I did was wrong. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the Father. In fact, I, I don't even deserve to be called your son. So not only am I apologizing, here's how I'm going I'm to pay for my mistake. I can't be your son anymore. I understand that. But I'll be a worker for you. I'll, 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 just wor I'll work as a hired hand. That's my restitution. That's how I'm going to pay you back for the mistakes that I made. Instead, what does the father do? He says, no way. He says, go get a robe for him. And the robe that he gave his son represented the best clothes that the family had to offer. He got the best of the best. The ring that was put on his finger likely bore the family seal, the family crest, signifying the fact that the son was being accepted back as a full member of that family. Not as a servant, but as a full-fledged son once again. You see, the younger son, his confession of sin and desire for reconciliation brought full and complete restoration to the family. Verse 24, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Don't miss this. God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. God's love and forgiveness is so large and is so perfect. It can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. I don't care what you have in your life right now. What sin you have been living with, hidden, that nobody knows except for God. Your secret sin. I don't care. Pastor, well, we do care. We love you. But what God is saying, don't feel guilty. Just confess it. I will forgive it. There's nothing that you have done or thought about doing or are about to do that God can't forgive. And if you truly want to be forgiven, God will restore you. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. That's Act 1. Act 1 shows us the freeness of God's grace. Act 2 
will show us the costliness of this grace and what I think is the true climax of this parable. And Act 2 is focused on the older brother. Act 1 was the younger brother. Act 2 is on the older brother. While all this was going on, where was the older brother? He was off in the field. He was working like a man. He heard some noise. He heard singing and dancing in the afternoon. What's going on? So he comes back to the house and he asks one of the servants, he says, what's all the hullabaloo? What's all this noise? What's all this excitement? We should, we should be working in the fields. Servant says, your, 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 son, your, your, your younger brother's back home. We're, we're celebrating. Instead of being happy, the older brother, Scripture tells us, became angry over what the father was doing for the younger brother. He was angry over the fact that his younger brother even came back in the first place. And the father has to come outside of the party because the older son doesn't want to go in. Don't miss this. In Jewish culture, if, if you're the host of a party, it was sinful for you to leave your guests. But the father so loved his older brother, his older son, that he left the party and he came outside. And he said, to his, he said son, come on in. Come join the party. Your, your, your brother's back. Son says, there's no way. I'm not doing it. He says, I've always done good. I've obeyed you at every turn, yet you've never rewarded me. My, my younger brother, he's, he's based upon his actions. He doesn't deserve what you're giving him. And the father's reply is this. Son, you could have had a goat. You could have had a fatted calf because you're the oldest son. And in Jewish culture, the oldest son is the first heir. So all of this is already yours. If you wanted a goat, you could have had one. If you wanted the fatted calf, all this is already yours. You, you belong, it all belongs to you. You just had to ask. He says, we celebrate because what was lost is now found. Now it's the older brother's turn to disgrace the father. You see, by remaining outside of the party, what the older son was doing was he, ca he was casting a, a vote of no confidence in his father's actions. This forces the father to come out to speak to his older son. A demeaning thing to do when you're the lord of the matter and the host of the great feast. Why is his son so angry? Why is the older son so mad? Well, I think he is especially upset over the cost of everything that is happening. Not just the fatted calf, but by bringing the younger, the younger son back into the family, he becomes again, an heir of the family. So now, the younger son demanded one-third of all that belonged to the father, and he got it. And then when he came back, he became a son again. So guess what? He gets another third. So now, the younger son actually is going to end up getting a th almost two-thirds. And the older son is upset by this. He's like, wait a minute. How come he gets so much? I don't get this. In essence, what the older son is saying is, I've worked myself to death, and I've earned what I've got, but my brother has done nothing to earn anything. Instead, he merited only expulsion, and yet you lavish upon him all this wealth. And he's back being an heir again of the family fortune. Where's the justice in that? He says, again, I've never disobeyed you, Dad. I have rights. I deserved to have been consulted on this matter. 
You have no right to make these decisions unilaterally. You can believe these are some of the things going through the older son's head. And don't dismiss the elder son's continued disrespect. He addressed his father by saying in Scripture, look. Now, when you learn the original language, it's not, it's not look. It's, it's akin to saying to your father, dude. Imagine if your son came up to you while you're addressing him, and he said to you, hey, dude. Utter disrespect. And this is what the older son did to his father. He basically called him, hey, dude, you can't do this. You just didn't do that in Jewish culture. It's outrageous. But how does the father respond to his elder son's behavior, his open rebellion? He invites him to come into the feast. He is not going to disown the younger son, and he is not going to disown the elder son. He leaves the choice in the hands of his eldest son. Will you come into the banquet or not? And that's where the parable ends. People are on their proverbial seat, I think, waiting for the finale of the parable from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give a finale. Why not? Remember, the real audience for this story is found in verses 1, 2, and 3. The audience was the Pharisees. The people who are complaining that Jesus was eating with the sinners. They were the elder brothers in the story. Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees to respond to his message. And what is the message? Well, in short, Jesus is redefining everything that they thought they knew about connecting with God. He is redefining sin. He is redefining what it means to be lost. And he's redefining what it means to be saved. In essence, he's saying there's two ways. There's two ways to find happiness in life. There's moral conformity and there's self-discovery. And I'll explain those here in a second. The elder brother, I believe, illustrates moral conformity. Moral conformity are, are, are like the Pharisees who believe that as long as you obey the Ten Commandments, that you don't swear, that you don't smoke, that you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do, well then, your obedience automatically gives you God's blessing and your final salvation resting place. That's what the moral conformist believes. Be good, and I get to go to heaven. That's the elder brother. The younger brother, on the other, on the other hand, illustrates self-discovery. They believe, like my brother, that uh, this world would be a lot better place with a lot less rules and a lot less traditions, and a lot less authority. That personal freedom ought to be the first, first and most important thing in life. Don't tell me what to do. Let me experience life my way. Truth is fluid. It doesn't matter what we believe as long as we enjoy life. That's what the self-discovery person would say. That's the attitude of the younger brother. The sinner. The moral conformist says... The immoral people, the people who do their own thing, they're the problem in the world. And we moral people, we're the solution. Well, the followers of self-discovery, the, the younger brothers would say that, no, you rule keepers, you, you good people, you're the problem. And us progressive people, we're the solution to the world. And both sides say, our way is the right way. And if you aren't with us, you're against us. And so the message of Jesus' parable, this parable, 
is basically that both of these approaches are completely and utterly wrong. They're both wrong. In Act 1, Jesus gives us the depiction of sin that anyone could recognize. Everybody knows what sin is. Out of control, selfish behavior, indulgent lifestyle. The younger son lived the life of what we would used to call the reviled sinner, doing wild things. In Act 2, the focus is on the, other, the elder brother. He is extremely obedient to his father and the commands of God. He is under control, and he is very self-disciplined. So you have two sons, one bad, supposedly, and one good, supposedly. Yet both, in this parable, at one point, are alienated from the father, or from God. The father has to go out and invite both of them to come into his feast of love. And the feast of love represents salvation, the banqueting hall, heaven. So there isn't just one lost son in this parable, there are actually two lost sons. And so thus again, like I say, maybe this parable should have been called the parable of the two lost sons. You know, in Act 2, like I said, ends in an unthinkable way. Jesus deliberately leaves the elder brother in his alienated state. The, the, the bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son, if you will, refuses to go into the feast. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral standing is lost. That's how this parable ends. The person who repents asks for forgiveness, and is willing to pay restitution, is saved, but the man who only relies on his moral standing of all the good that he has done, he's lost. He's not saved. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness. He's losing the father's love because of his goodness and his reliance upon his goodness. It isn't his sins that created the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride that he has in keeping his moral record. It's not his wrongdoings, but his assumed righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. What did the younger son most want? The younger son wanted his portion of the family's assets but he didn't want to have to live under the father's control. He wanted control over his own life. Total independence. And he tried to get this by demanding his separation from the father and his family, and it kind of failed for him. What did the elder son want? Maybe a little hard to figure out. But I think he wanted the same thing. He too wanted the father's goods, rather than the father himself. He was more concerned about the fatted calf, about not getting a goat, about not getting the robe. He was more concerned about the stuff than he was about the love that his father was giving him. The elder son wanted the same thing the younger son did. Independence, control, and stuff. The only difference is that instead of demanding separation, the elder brother stayed very close and never disobeyed. But you and I know that's not possible. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned, for all have disobeyed and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, if we claim to have never disobeyed, 
We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This was the older brother's way to gain control. Because I've never disobeyed you, Dad. You owe me. So really, when you cut down to it, the hearts of the two brothers are exactly the same. At some point in this story, both resented their father's authority, both sought ways to get out from under it, they each wanted to get into a position where they could tell the father what to do. Each one rebelled. One did so by being very, very bad. The other one rebelled by trusting his extreme goodness. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. Do you realize what Jesus is teaching here? Neither son loved the father for who the father was. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving their Father for the Father's sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from God either by breaking His rules or by keeping all of them diligently and trusting solely on your moral code. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for eventually rebelling against God. Religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God to control Him or put Him in a position where they think He owes them. So despite their ethical drive, they are, in essence, rebelling against His authority. If, like the elder brother, you seek to control God through your obedience, then, your, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make him give you the things that you want in your life. Elder brothers obey God only to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself. Religious and moral people can be avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord as much as the younger brothers who say they don't believe in God and define right and wrong for themselves. So here is, here is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. While everyone else defines sin as breaking the list of rules, Jesus says sin is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior and Lord and Judge, as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. So the point of the story is that there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One, by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course, the reviled sinner, the younger brother way, or one, by keeping all the moral laws, being very, very good, and saying, that's enough. You owe me heaven, God. <laughs> I've been good. You know, funny, Jesus does not divide us into black hats and white hats like they do in the old classic westerns. You know, there's no moral good guys and immoral bad guys. Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a completely different spirituality than the Pharisees were used to. It, it's not religion, and it's not irreligion. It's not morality or immorality, necessarily. It's not conservatism or liberalism. The gospel of Jesus says that everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved despite being wrong. And everyone is called to recognize this. 
and then make the changes that we need to make in our lives in order to accept what God is offering us, which is his grace, which is his life, which is his forgiveness, which is his restoration. Even though both sons are wrong, the father loves them both, and the father invites them both back into his love and into his feast. By contrast, the elder brothers, they, they, they do divide the world into two. The elder brothers love the old westerns with the black hats and the white hats because you just know who's good and who's bad that way, right? That makes life easy. The good guys who look like us and act like us and then those bad guys who are the real problems of the world. And that's, and that's where this all started, is with the Pharisees grumbling that Jesus was eating with the sinners. You know, and the funny thing is, younger brothers do the same thing. They say that all the open-minded people are in, and all the closed-minded legalists are out. Both are wrong. And Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, which is my paraphrase of Luke 18, 14, the humble are in and the proud are out. It's not the sinners are in and the, and the good are out or, or, or backwards and forwards. It's the humble are in. And it's the proud that are out. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. If you don't think you need the grace of God, there should be a light going off in your head right now. Bing! You're probably an elder brother or a younger brother, and you're in trouble. If you're here today, and you do not believe that you need the grace of God, I am here to tell you, you are the person who needs the grace of God. Because you're an elder brother who's relying only on your moral standing, or you're a younger brother who's just trying to live his life his own way. Both need the grace of God. The people who think they're fine are usually the ones that are moving the furthest away from God. Psalm 138.6 says, The Lord cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Even though both sons are wrong, the story does not end the same way for both of them, does it? The story ends with the younger son being restored into a right relationship with his father because he confessed, because he admitted what he had done was wrong, asked for forgiveness, and grace was lavished upon him. Well, the other brother is not restored into a right relationship. He's standing outside with his arms folded across his chest saying, I'm right, you're wrong, you have no right to do what you're doing, you owe me. Which brother are you this morning? Are you the younger brother who has already confessed and been restored? Hallelujah, I say. But if you're like me, I'm the type of younger brother who needs to be forgiven every day. And I need his grace every day. Because I want to be welcomed into that love feast each and every day. And just receive his grace. Or are you an elder brother that is solely relying on following the rules. Because if, if you're just trusting on the rules that you're following to get you to heaven, I'm just telling you, I, I, I don't want to be in your shoes. Because you need Jesus. You need his grace. You need him in your life. You need 
his forgiveness. Because the elder brother is more blind to what is going on, being an older brother is probably the more spiritually desperate condition than even that of a reviled sinner. How dare you say that is often how religious people respond if you suggest that the relationship with God isn't right. They say, I'm there every time the door is open at the church. I serve on three committees. I send my kids to all the appropriate Sunday schools. I, I, I teach Sunday school. I go to Bible studies. I, I set the chairs up. I take them down. And you know, if that's all you're relying on to get you to heaven, Jesus is here today to tell you that he doesn't care about those things. What he cares about is your heart. Your willingness to say, I need you, Father. I need you, Father. I need you. No one has ever taught a lesson like this before Jesus came. This was mind-blowing to the Pharisees. And let me tell you, folks, it's one of the reasons, this message was one of the reasons why Jesus was killed. Let's pray. Dear Father, each one of us here today, I, I believe strongly that we connect with one of these figures in this parable. That either we're the younger son, we're the elder son, or we're a mix of the two, or somewhere in between. Lord, I pray that nobody leaves here today with their arms crossed on their chest, believing that what they have done is enough, that their moral standing alone is enough to get them into your love feast, into heaven. I pray, Lord, that those who have not yet asked you to be their Lord and Savior, that those who have not admitted their wrongdoing, their sin, that they have not confessed these things to you, that they haven't invited you into their life, that they haven't sought restoration with you for the way they've lived. I pray that they don't leave here today without doing that. Lord God, we just pray. We say thank you for your grace. Your grace is... We can never out-sin your grace because your grace abounds. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we do pray. God's people said, amen.